0: let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you and we are grateful for the opportunity that we have today to gather um, as a body of believers and to remind ourselves of these truths, uh, to remind ourselves of what it means to know that you live. And that as a result, um, we get to experience life anew, to, to gather with all of creation and bring you praise, to, to declare that you are our anchor. God, that you Provide that stability in life. And as a result, God, we know that all things we encounter, uh, we can sing boldly and confidently that it is well with our souls. All these things that we've been able to remind ourselves of this morning, God, we are grateful. More than anything, God, we are so grateful for your precious, holy, and sacred word that allows us to come in week after week, day after week, day after day, and submit ourselves to you and to your instruction, to your guidance, to your provision and so we ask that God as we prepare to open up these scriptures once again you would enrich us with your presence that you would illuminate our hearts our souls and our minds and help us to see more clearly how it is that you desire us to live and to worship you and to bring you the glory that you so richly deserve we ask that you would be with us now and that you would continue to watch over us in Jesus sacred powerful and holy name we pray amen amen it's good to see everybody this morning uh, you all get a chance to watch the slam dunk competition last night? Just me? Okay. All right. Well, it was cool. It was good. For what it's worth, Aaron Gordon was robbed, okay? It was criminal uh, what I saw. But I was, I was watching it, and I started thinking to myself um, that of all the great different feats that you can accomplish in athletics, like hit a home run, throw a deep pass, if I had my choice of anything, I would love to be able to dunk a basketball. I just think that would be so cool. Like the way that that would instill confidence and swagger uh, to me would just be really, really great. And that, that is one of the main things that we have to consider when you think about athletics is that you have to play with confidence to be a successful athlete. The, the moment that you stop playing with confidence, the moment that you start playing with timidity or hesitation, then, then it totally changes your ability to impact the game. The moment that you start worrying about getting hit as opposed to inflicting the hit, or, or the, you decide that you don't want to take that game-winning shot or be the one that can drive in the game-winning run, then that's when all of a sudden your ability to influence the game drastically changes. And so I started to think back on my illustrious athletic career, if you can call it that. And, and I recognized that when it came to baseball, I always had some level of confidence. That was the sport that I enjoyed playing most i played throughout high school and i've shared with you before i was never the biggest the fastest the strongest but when it came to baseball i still had confidence that i had the ability to hold my own the other sports were a little bit of a different story Uh, football i started playing in seventh grade and and i remember first kind of getting out there on the football field similar experience very clear i wasn't the biggest the strongest the fastest but i was like okay i can i can hold my own and then i got to eighth grade and all my friends and these guys i was playing against they grew into men and I didn't. And that totally changed the football experience for me. I mean, there were numerous practices where I was just getting decleated and hit from left and right. And so I started playing like this. Like, where's the hit coming from? I was not worried about inflicting the pain. I was worried about receiving the pain. And so by the time I got to high school, they were asking me if I wanted to play football. And I was like, no, thank you very much. I am done with that. So, but I knew I wanted to play more than just baseball. So I also tried basketball. And I decided to go out for the freshman Basketball team. I'd played basketball uh, through most of my life. Again, kind of had a certain level of like, I think I can hold my own. And I don't really remember the exact number of people that were on the freshman basketball team, but for the sake of the story, let's say it was 12. 12 seems to make sense. If, th- if it was 12, my friend Wes Lambert and I, we were numbers 11 and 12, okay? Like we barely made it. And, and that was so painfully obvious to us when we started practicing. We show up early to school, I think, practice was like an hour and a half before school or something like that. And so you're already tired and trying to like wake yourself up. We'd go through the initial drills and then we'd kind of get towards the bulk of practice and it would be more of a scrimmage and it was always Wes and Jeremiah sitting on the side watching everybody else play. And, and without fail, like five to 10 minutes left in practice, coach would finally realize, he'd be like, Lambert, Smith, get out there. And we're like, okay, <laughs> you know, we've been sitting for a while, coach, you know, let me warm up again. And it was just very clear, we were not an integral part of this team and I remember being towards the end of the year and I can't remember if if our team was way ahead or way behind, either way the game was was not in question and uh, it was like coach finally kind of gave us another opportunity to maybe prove ourselves. Most game experiences for me, I walked out onto the court, kind of acknowledged whoever was there and then I did this for the rest of the game, right? That was my game experience but on this particular day, coach says, Smith, Lambert, get out there. And so I go out there and you can see my friends in the stands and it's like shock and awe. They're like, he's getting to play, you know? And they're like cheering me on and all this other stuff, which was a good real measure of my self-esteem in that moment as well. And, and you would think that a good athlete, okay, in that particular circumstance would think to themselves, okay, I'm going to prove coach wrong, right? I, I'm going to drive the lane. I'm going to take the shots. I'm going to show them that, that I deserve to be out there and they would play with confidence, right? That's what a good athlete would do. What I did, I passed the ball. Every single time and I came, I was like, nope, 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 nope. I'm clearly not part of this like integral plan of success for this team. And so if I, could do ba- if I could go back and do anything over again, I would love to tell my little high school self, man, take advantage of those opportunities. Play with confidence. Don't play scared, don't play timid, right? Confidence is a huge part to being successful, but we know that it's not just athletics, right? I'm sure that we've all probably encountered this on some form or fashion at some point in our lives. Sometimes it's academics, right? You find yourself in a class having to do a project, having to finish an assignment, a report, or something, where all of a sudden you realize, man, this concept is well beyond my comprehension, it's well beyond my capabilities. And so you, you have this lack of confidence and it influences how you present the report, how you turn in the report, whatever it is, and you can feel that you're not taking advantage of some of those opportunities. Sometimes it's in the professional world, right? Your boss, your employer gives you some sort of an assignment, something that you realize, I don't have the expertise, I don't have the experience. You find yourself in conversations hoping people don't ask you too many questions because you'll re- they'll soon realize you don't really know what you're talking about. And, and you have this self-doubt. Probably the, the one context that most of us relate to is in a social setting, right? All of a sudden, we're worried about how we look, how we dress, what people are gonna think, how we, how we interact. And so we, the last thing we want is for people to notice us. And so we retreat, we act in timidity, we don't act in confidence, we don't take advantage of those opportunities to build relationships, we just try to go unnoticed. There are numerous examples that we go through in life Where the power of self doubt really begins to influence how we engage the world around us. So, my question for you this morning is what does that look like when it comes to your relationship with God? Right? Those other examples, playing freshman basketball or even some of the things we encounter professionally, academically, even socially, those are often trivial examples. But what about when God speaks? What about when He asks you to do something? What's your response? Do you respond with timidity and, and hesitation? Do you shrink back from those opportunities that he's presented to you? Or do you, do you rise up with confidence and belief? That, that's the example that we're going to be looking at today. That's kind of the next story that we find in Moses' exchange with God here at the burning bush. And part of what we're going to see is that there is a pretty troubling thing when we recognize that self-doubt looms larger in our minds than the power of God. And how that can create these these moments where we miss these incredible opportunities that God has entrusted to us. So my hope is that we can learn from Moses' experience and be encouraged in the midst of our self-doubt, but then see how the cross of Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to continue the story. Now, as we've seen throughout this exchange between God and Moses at the burning bush, we've seen God... Uh, reveal his holiness, uh, that, that Moses first comes over to inquire of this miraculous sight. And then what do we recognize, right? That, that the first seed of self-doubt is articulated at the very beginning, right? That Moses said, now, who, who am I to go to Pharaoh, right? God has given him the task. He said, I'm going to, I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to send you to Egypt. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. And Moses' first question was, who am I to do that? And, and really everything since has been God's answer, right? It, he, is, he is reminding him, I'm going to go with you. You're going with my power, not yours. He, he reveals the divine name. He predicts everything as it's about to unfold. He says, this is what's happened in the past. Here's what's going to happen in the future. And he's giving Moses all these reassurances that he can move with confidence. And when you get to chapter four, you now get a chance to see how Moses responds. So picking up in chapter four, verse one, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So here's God having put all these different answers already in front of Moses, right? We we have this, this manifestation of holiness, of his divine name, of this foretelling, and now we get to see how Moses responds, and his first question really drives us to the heart of this passage, which is belief, right? What if they don't believe? That's, that's the opening question, and, and five different times that verb for belief is used here in the opening few verses of chapter four. And so what we need to do is really understand what this word means so that we can better approach this passage. And, and when you look at it in the Hebrew, I think it's pronounced aman, Something along those lines. And, and it has this connection of believing something to be true, but with confidence, right? That there's a level of certainty with your belief, right? And in fact, when you think about this word, it is often translated, or can we also be translated as amen? And that's where we get the closing of our prayers. You think about the songs that we sing. What we're saying when we say this word amen is that we believe with certainty the things that we're asking for will be heard, or we believe with certainty to the one to whom we are asking, right? Amen, amen, I'm alive, I'm alive because he lives. I believe with certainty that this is true, right? This is where we get Hebrews 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of what we, believe, or what we hope for and the certainty of that which we cannot see, right? It is about certainty, that that's the, the essence of this word. Now, I don't know that we often consider belief and faith to carry that level of certainty when we use it in our context. A lot of times when we start thinking about what we believe or our faith, we talk about it in terms of something that we think could be true, that we hope is true, but I'm not entirely sure. And so we, we often miss that level of certainty that's really being conveyed here. And, and yet that's exactly what, what God is trying to identify and, and to pursue. And so when you have that certainty, what it does is it creates stability in your life. It, it establishes you. There's this verse in Isaiah chapter seven, I think it's seven and nine, and it's referencing Ahaz. And it says, if you don't stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. It's this really powerful and yet subtle and simple verse that tells us without this certainty, without this assurance, your life is unstable. Right, it's fluid. This is the same thing that James kind of references in chapter one when he talks about praying for wisdom, right, that you should ask God who gives it freely, but when you ask, you should believe and not doubt because a person that doubts is like a, a wave on the sea that is tossed to and fro by the wind, right? So here, here's what I want us to see. Doubt can be a good thing, right? Like, like doubt, to have questions can, can help drive our search for truth. It can help drive our search for faith. Doubt is not something that we should be afraid of. We should create a church, an environment that's safe to ask questions and acknowledge we have questions, but we need to hold those questions in an appropriate tension and recognize that if doubt consumes us, it leads to instability. So what we do is we take those questions, we, we seek them out to find that certainty, that assurance, that confidence that allows us to have an established and stable life where we stand on solid ground. That's the whole notion of belief and that's what's at question here. Now, here's the thing about this particular passage in this particular text is that this, this really isn't, it is to a certain degree, it, there's, there's a little bit of a mixture that, that this isn't purely questioning God, right? This isn't just about do I doubt God, do I doubt his power? No, notice the real question. It, it's not Moses saying, but what if they don't believe you? He says, what if they don't believe me. Part of what we're recognizing here is that what's also in this term for faith is the idea of relationship, right? The, the reason you have that confidence, the reason you have that assurance is because there is a relationship where you say, I trust the person to whom I need to believe, right? That, that's a huge part of this. And so part of what Moses is asking is really not an unreasonable question because his relationship with the Hebrew people has been very diminished. I mean, think about it. Part of what Moses is saying is, look, I'm here. I see this manifestation of power. I see you revealing yourself in the burning bush, but nobody else does. How how are they gonna know that this actually happened? And oh, by the way, do you understand my reputation with these people? It's been years. It's actually been decades since I've been there. And the last time I was there, I had to leave as a fugitive, right? I, I was escaping a potential death sentence, my reputation among these people is highly in question. What in the world makes you think they're going to believe me? That's what he's asking. And it's, it's not unreasonable. A couple of lessons for us in this opening question is that first and foremost, it, it serves as a reminder to each of us to be mindful of who it is that God often sends. Right, that a lot of times it's the people that are unsuspecting. Put, put ourselves in the shoes of the Hebrews. Right, if someone showed up here today, and we hadn't seen them for decades, and we knew that their reputation included being a fugitive from the law, even potential murder, and they come up and they say, no, God's revealed himself to me, but I don't have any real evidence or proof, no other witnesses, would you actually believe him? I think the majority of us, if we're honest, would say no. And yeah, that's exactly who God often sends, the most unsuspecting, the most unlikely people. That's often where he moves, because it helps stir faith. But what we also see here is just how significant this self-doubt has become, right? This is a different Moses. And what we see is that Moses has probably looked back after many years over this past, right? Maybe it was the, the challenges of his childhood and being an orphan. Maybe it was the regret and the mistake of being a murderer. Maybe it was this fact that he had to live as a refugee, as a fugitive, whatever it is, but something in his past has led him to think to himself, will they actually believe me? His question of self-doubt has impacted his whole sense of identity. And that's the question. So God responds to that. And, and his response is really gracious, if you think about it, because not only has God already revealed somewhat of a miracle with the burning bush, not only has he revealed his divine name and then gone ahead and said, listen, <clears throat> I'm telling you, this is exactly how it's going to happen. In 3.18, he says, they will listen to you. Like, that should be sufficient. And yet Moses still questions. And yet God decides, okay, I'm I'm going to give him more evidence. I'm going to give him signs. And so we can see the graciousness of God still at play here. But here's one of the things that we need to consider when we begin to look at these signs that God reveals to Moses. Right there with the word believe in almost every instance in this passage comes another word that implies listening or pay attention, right? If they don't believe or pay attention, if they don't believe or listen, right? Part of what we need to see is that God, when he performs these signs and these miracles, he's not doing it just for the sake of performing a sign and a miracle, right? He's doing this to convey a message, that there's something that needs to be understood. There's something that needs to be heard. So when we look at these different signs that God demonstrates to Moses, he's not just trying to demonstrate his power, he's trying to convey a message. So, so what can we see? The, the first sign is, is the staff that turns into a snake, right? And Moses runs from it and then God says, grab it by the tail, pick it up, picks it back up and it turns back into a staff. It's a pretty cool sign. Kevin, good try. It was awesome, right? I was ready for you, man. Like if you were ready, but if you had brought snakes today, I think we would have had to change denominational affiliation maybe or something like that. Start handling snakes in the service. But, but it's a pretty cool sign, but there's a message that comes with it, right? I mean, think about it. First of all, we know that a serpent uh, is pretty emblematic of evil. We're not saying this is the same serpent of, of the early chapters of Genesis, but we do know that the serpent is a cursed animal, that this is a, a representation of evil. We also know that in Egyptian culture, serpents were often revered and, and in some cases worshiped and seen as symbols of power. Right, so you have a manifestation of evil. You have a symbolic representation of Egypt. And so as a result, it creates tremendous amount of fear in Moses. Right? We know that this wasn't the cute little garden snake right, that was transformed here. Moses runs from it. So whatever it is, it's dangerous. It's probably venomous or lethal. He wants no part of it. And so this is also about dealing with fear. And yet look at what God does in the midst of that fear. You know what he asked him to do? He asked him to grab it by the tail. How many of you have ever picked up a snake before? Raise your hands. Way more than I thought, oh my gosh. Y'all are crazy, right? Uh, Do you pick up snakes by the tail? No, right? If anything, you pin them down. First, you just don't pick them up is what I would say. But if you do, you pin them down then you grab them behind the neck and the head, right? So that it can't strike you. So God is saying, pick it up by the tail. That's intentional. He is, he is actually asking Moses to be even more vulnerable in his fear, knowing that he'd be susceptible to that strike. That's an incredible request. And so he does it and then, and then God changes it back into staff. So the message is this, God is saying, listen, my power is greater than the power of evil. It's greater than the power of Egypt. It is greater than your fears and your vulnerabilities. I rule over all, even the things in the natural world. Now, before Moses can even respond to this sign, he gives him another one. He says, now take your hand, put it inside your cloak. Moses takes it out and it's, it's covered in leprosy, right? It's, it's white as snow. And then he takes it back in and then it's restored the, the, where his flesh looks just like the rest of his flesh. Now, again, this would be a sign that would elicit a tremendous amount of fear, right? When, when Moses pulls out his hand and sees that it's leprous, right, this is not like Moses was puzzled it was just like, well, that's odd. I've got a rash, right? Like this, this would have been, ter- this was a terrifying disease. It, it was known to be uh, incurable, fatalistic, and, and what it implied for you if you caught it was that it would totally alter your ability to exist in the world around you, right? You had to dress a certain way. You would have to cry out that you were inflicted with this disease. It meant isolation. It meant ostracization. I mean, all of those different things that came with it. It was also believed to be highly contagious and could spread to other parts of the body. And so not only is Moses terrified by this disease potentially, but by God saying, put it back in your cloak to another part of unprotected skin would imply that it could potentially spread. So again, God is speaking to Moses' fear and asking him to be more vulnerable. And yet the message in this miracle is God is saying, I have the power to take health away from the body and restore it. My power is not just over creation, bushes and staffs and snakes. It's even over your very life. I can inflict it. I can restore it. And you think about the, the plagues and the signs that come up for Egypt here in a few chapters. It's an incredible reminder for Moses. And once again, God is showing that his power is greater than Moses' fear and vulnerability. But again, before Moses can say anything about it, God says, now let me tell you a third one. Right? If they don't believe the first, maybe they'll believe the second. But if they don't believe both, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Now, he doesn't actually perform this sign here. He just tells him, this is what I'm going to have you do if they don't believe the first two. I'm going to ask you to take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And when it pours out on the ground, it's going to turn to blood. And now we have a completely different message. Right? The, the first two are about God's power and, and hopefully having Moses overcome some of his fear and his vulnerability. But now this is about purpose, This, to me, is a sign that's reminding Moses as to why he's been commissioned and called in the first place. What do we know about the Nile, right? First of all, we know that it, again, is a symbol of power in Egyptian life, right? They have a God of the Nile, so once again, God is saying none of the things that they worship or look to as power can compare to my own, but but there's something more significant. Right, when when Pharaoh was filled with that corruptible power and he begins to exact that sort of vengeance on other people, what does he choose to do? He chooses genocide, he chooses hatred and he instructs all the young children to be thrown into the Nile. The symbolism in the message is unmistakable. What's happening here is the blood of the innocent is crying out to God and he's saying, I'm a God of justice. I've seen the oppression of my people and I refuse to do it. leave it unanswered. I'm sending you to deal with these injustices. And it reminds Moses of that purpose, probably in some way trying to awaken that Moses that we knew once before that was so quick to rise up in the face of injustice. And so these are the signs and you would think that this would be sufficient. You would think Moses would say, got it. Let's go. Let's do this. But what does he do? He gives another excuse. Pardon your servant, Lord, but I'm not eloquent in speech. Never have been, not even now that you've spoken to me. I'm, I'm slow in my language, slow in my speaking. Now, a lot of times uh, that, that passage or that verse has been interpreted to, to assume that Moses had some form of a speech impediment, right? Maybe he had a stutter. Maybe he just, he just couldn't communicate effectively or well. I think that's I think that's hard to make that conclusion. I've made that conclusion before, but when you look at Acts 7, I think 22, it talks about how Moses was actually powerful in speech and action. And so the, I don't know that we can say that he had some sort of problem with articulation or enunciation as much as he's just saying, this is not my skill. I don't have command over this language. You're asking someone to go and stand before Pharaoh and be persuasive and make these demands. That, that's not my capability. I don't have that aptitude and that strength. Right? So part of what we see Moses is doing now is before he was questioning his reputation, his identity, his past, and how that's influenced him. And that's created self-doubt. And now his self-doubt is driven by his own skill set. I just don't have that ability, God. I, I, you've got the wrong guy. I don't have that skill set. But listen to how significantly he's conveying this. Because he's saying, listen, I've never had it, and even now I don't have it. Right Here's Moses, and he sees all that God is doing, and it's almost as if Moses is saying, look, I, I see your power, I see it unfold, I can see what you can do, but I'm the same old Moses. I can't do this for you. And so Moses gives this second excuse. And so now we get to see God respond again. And, and a lot of times you read the Bible and you see like like the word of God, and do you ever like stop and kind of check what kind of tone you're reading those passages with? Because a lot of times we assume a certain tone that God is taking with his people. And a lot of times it's just based on our own inclinations and assumptions, but I think context here can kind of give us a clue as to what sort of tone God takes with this next response right, towards the end, we see that God actually gets angry with Moses. And so I think it's reasonable to assume that his frustration is growing. But I think we can also determine that not just by the vocabulary that's used in this passage, but just common sense, right? I think about how I deal with my children, right? And and I get so frustrated when I have to ask for things more than once. And guess what? That's parenting. Like, I I don't, I can't tell you how many times, like, man, if I have to say, put on your shoes one more time, I'm gonna lose my mind, right? Like if I have to tell you to clean your room, go to bed, like it takes numerous times. And the more times it takes, the more frustrated you get, right? And so what happens is is that you keep explaining things, you keep explaining things, and then you finally get a tone. I get a tone with my kids that hopefully conveys to them, dad means business, right? You disagree now, you disobey now, then then there's gonna be consequence. I better do what he's asking me to do. That's kind of what we're seeing unfold here. God is saying the same thing over and over again. It's not about you. It's not about your power. It's not about strength. It's about me. Let me show you all these things. And then finally, again, Moses is saying, I'm just not strong enough. And so I believe what God's response here is very similar to a parent that would be frustrated with their child saying, who is it that gives people their mouths? Who is it determines who can speak and be mute or blind and see? Is it not I go? I'm sending you. You can sense that frustration, you can sense that this is this moment where God is saying, Enough, believe in me, quit being so timid, quit shrinking back and avoiding what I've asked you to do. And you would think in this moment Moses would finally go, Okay, I get it. But instead, we see just how powerful this self doubt has really become. Now Moses is without excuses, God has answered every objection. And so he just begs, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. It's emphatic. The the verb for send is mentioned twice. Send, send someone else. He's desperate. He's begging. And what we can see here is that in this moment, the power of self-doubt that Moses carries looms far larger in his mind than the power of God. And we see that there's a consequence, right? We see how God reacts. It says he's angry with him. That word means he is strongly displeased. This is not what he desires. This is not the sort of relationship and trust that he wants. And so what happens? There's a consequence. God says, fine, we'll go with Aaron. And the plans change. Change. There's, there's an important lesson in this for us, I believe. I don't think we can change God's plan, right? We, we can't derail his purposes. We, we can't, uh, you know, thwart his, his plan by our obedience or disobedience. But our role within that plan can absolutely change. And Moses' did. You think about that opportunity. You think about what God maybe had in store, what he desired, and Moses consistently said no. That it changed his involvement and his role in God's plan and purposes. And I think that's something we have to take to heart. That we can allow self-doubt to become so debilitating that it, it impacts the relationship we have with God to the point that our role in his plan can actually change. And that should cause us to stop and reflect for a moment. But what we see taking place here is just how crippling and how powerful this self-doubt has become from Moses. I mean, think about it, what, what has led him here is this moment where he's, he's looked back on his past and he's thought either because of all the things that were done to him or the mistakes that he has made or, or the fact that he doesn't have a relationship or credibility, his, his soured reputation, whatever it is, or, or his inabilities, his lack of skills, all of it has become so overwhelming to him that he's right there in the middle of a miracle, watching the power of God unfold all around him, giving him an opportunity, and his answer is, send someone else. Is that you? Is that us? That's the power of self-doubt, right? That Some of us are in here today, and we think about our past, The things that have been done to us, the injustices that we've had to endure, maybe the mistakes that we've made, and we have become so overwhelmed by those, they've shaped our identity. Or maybe we've become so offensive that we genuinely think we don't have anything to offer. We don't have any skill set. We don't, we can't speak well enough. We're not smart enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not influential enough. And so clearly God doesn't really have a plan for me. I believe in the power of God, I just doubt my role in it. Is that you? What role is self-doubt playing in your relationship with God? You wanna know a good litmus test to answer that question? You know one of the greatest manifestations of self-doubt is inaction. That's what it creates, inactivity. In In a best case scenario, that inactivity results in regret. Right, in a worst case scenario, it creates guilt and shame. Right, so, so part of what may happen, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is this self-doubt begins to creep in in a way that we just begin to manage life. Right, we just, we just get into a routine, we get the nine to five, we get the normal life, and we ultimately put ourselves on the sidelines. Right, and we, we miss the adventure, we miss the opportunities we miss the risk that God is asking us to take. Send someone else to these injustices. Someone send, send someone else to work for adoption. Send someone else to go share their face. Send someone else to do all these things. I, I'm just going to stay here where it's comfortable, it's safe. And really, what we're doing is we're being inactive. And we've convinced ourselves that that it's comfortable when in reality it's probably driven by a level of self doubt. We're living a life of timidity, not one of courage and confidence. And so in that scenario, we're probably gonna end with several seasons of regret, things that perhaps we've missed out on. The worst case scenario is where we become so overwhelmed by past experiences, mistakes that we've made, sins that we've committed, things that have been done to us to a point that we have assumed that identity, we've assumed that struggle, And it has become so debilitating to us that we really believe we genuinely don't have anything to offer. And so now we have just withdrawn from everything. And we carry guilt. We carry shame. And we feel genuinely, yes, God probably has some level of power, but just nothing for me. And all of a sudden, life becomes about survival. I'm just trying to make it through a day. It's about burnout it's about fatigue and all these different things we're exhausted and we begin to think god really can't do anything for me i believe he's out there i just don't have a role in it we can think that about ourselves we can think that about us as a church we can think about it as a community we can think about this in so many different levels can i just tell you i refuse to let you think that way I refuse to let us think that way. And so I wanna encourage you this morning. If that is a season you are in or have been through where you have been overwhelmed with the power of self-doubt in your life and God's plan for you, can I tell you you're in good company? <laughs> Exhibit A is Moses. Right? God takes that moment and allows him to grow in strength. Right? He allows him to flourish, but it's not just Moses. We could point to Gideon. God calls Gideon and what does Gideon say? Sorry God, uh, my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh and I'm the weakest of my clan, I'm the weakest of the weak. Not exactly a statement of confidence. Right? You, you could go to Solomon when he's uh, given the throne, he says I'm too young, I have no idea how to handle these responsibilities. You could have Isaiah when he encounters the presence of God, he says woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. You couldn't possibly use me. You go to Jeremiah, calls Jeremiah. What does he say? I'm too young. I don't know what to speak. Time and time again, we see self-doubt be the initial response to God's call. So if that's you, take comfort. You're in good company. But we need to press beyond it. We need to learn, as they learned, how God can use us in our weaknesses. And where that ultimately leads us is to the cross and how it drastically changes everything. See, all those examples I just referenced are from the Old Testament. And here's here's what it has in common. Here's what the cross does that is so incredible. Here's what Jesus does for you and me. What did I tell you at the beginning? Belief is about relationship, having confidence and assurance in in someone, right? And, And as great as these stories are, as amazing as these stories are with Moses and Isaiah and all these others, there's still this reminder in these interactions that their relationship can only go so far. In the Old Testament, what's the word to Moses as this power is being revealed? Stop, don't come any closer, right? What is the response from Isaiah? I am, I am unclean, there's this constant reminder of unworthiness and separation that still exists between God and humanity, right? That's, that's the reality of these dynamics. Even with the making of the tabernacle in the temple, you have the outer courts, you have the inner sanctuary, but in the most central place where God's presence is believed to have dwelled was the most holy of holies and no one could enter it but a great high priest and only through the shedding of blood. And so what happens with Jesus? With Jesus, the message of stop, don't come any closer changes to draw near. Draw near to God. What Jesus does is he becomes that great high priest, and by his blood and by his perfect sacrifice, we are brought into the holiest of holies. And that changes everything about our relationship. And so, all of a sudden, after Jesus, the response of those who believe is rarely one of self doubt and timidity, and almost always one of courage and confidence. Consider the apostles. Right, uneducated fishermen tax collectors who stand in the face of opposition, who stand in the face of persecution, and they say, we can't help but speak of that which we have seen and heard. You think about Paul and what he writes. He he prays to these other churches and says, pray for me that I would fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, because if God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. This is the language of the cross. One of my favorite descriptions of it comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Let me remind you of the way that this is presented in this particular letter. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God, with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. We have confidence to be drawn near to God with the full assurance of faith. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive What he has promised for in just a little while, church, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. That's what the gospel does for us. It's what it's done for you. And so if you're here today and you're worried about some past Injustice, some past wounds, some past sin. That makes you feel unworthy, that makes you feel less than than Jesus has washed it as white as snow. If you sit there and you think about a deficiency, a limitation, that you're just not good enough, that you're just not capable, God is not looking at you and your strength, not asking you to be a certain way, perform a certain way, to have a certain level of perfection, he sees Christ, <laughs> He sees that you've been cleansed and that you are ushered into his presence by the blood of the lamb. So the last thing we need to do when God calls is to respond in timidity and self-doubt. The last thing we need to do is to shrink back in fear, but to rise up as individuals, even greater, even more so, to rise up as a church with confidence understanding the fullness of the power of God, being firmly established in this faith that we could be those who are not going to shrink back and be destroyed, but stand up and believe because we have been saved by Jesus Christ. May we live accordingly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are grateful for the opportunity to once again see the saving work of Jesus. God, I pray for all those that are here today that may struggle with a level of self-doubt, that have gone through certain struggles or challenges to the point that they have questioned, maybe not you, God, but the plan that you have for them. Maybe those of us that have tried to just play it safe, that have tried to avoid The risk and the adventure of living boldly for you. God, we confess our desire to to retreat and to keep things comfortable, to to want others to be the ones that live that daring life. God, I pray that you would break us out of that timidity and out of that hesitation, that none of us would be those that shrink back when you call. God, that we would rise up with an assurance of faith. God, as we pray continually that your power would truly be unleashed in our lives. God, help it to overcome anything that we see in our past, anything that we see in our perceived abilities, that we can trust you. God, that we trust you because of what you've done for us through the cross and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We trust you with all that we are today, tomorrow, and forevermore that you would use us, God, to the glory of your precious, sacred, and holy name. For it's in that name that we pray these things. Amen and amen.